Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. <laughs> All right. Oh, you entered the matrix. That's why I didn't start. All right. Welcome to Value After Hours. This is Bill Brewster with my co-host, Jake Taylor and Toby Carlisle. Jake, what are you going to be talking about this week? I'm going to be talking about a little video that came out uh, about Tom Gaynor and position sizing and some interesting takeaways from that. And Toby, what are you going to talk about? Capital Spectator article on the 700-year decline in interest rates. And I've extrapolated that out. And I think that you're going to be paid somewhere in the order of about 35% to be a borrower in about 2700 Okay. It's gonna be skate to that puck. Real good for three G. Uh, and I'll be talking about marathon asset management and capital account. Right, right after, after this. this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Who wants to start off today? <laughs> I'll Jake. go first. Uh, I'm going to be talking today about this video that circulated on Twitter where Tom Gaynor was discussing uh, <clears throat> different position sizing and strategy around how much should you own to kind of force yourself to do different amounts of research. Um, so the, the, the bigger story of that is that uh, Tom was talking about how he views it, uh, one, like a, um, <clears throat> like, uh, well, I'll start first with, he's talking about uh, if he's watching a college football game with a friend and he doesn't know either of the teams, he'll place a friendly wager, you know, something small, just to have a little bit of skin in the game. And he applies that same idea to to investing, where uh, he views different investments as you know, there's the majors, there's minor league teams, there's uh, even lower, you know, single A. And depending on how much he feels like he knows about a company, the more he gets to know it, the 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 more it can escalate from you know the single A to double A to triple A, um, all the way up to majors for your biggest position holdings. Uh, so. I found it to be an interesting framework to tackle the idea of what do we do with position sizing. Right. The, it kicked off a discussion, right? Like he, he's saying, and I think his argument is a good one, and it's one that we've discussed previously on this podcast a few times, and it's one that I subscribe to too, that until you buy something, uh, you don't follow it closely enough to really form an opinion on it. And so the, a few people objected to that in the comments and they said, um, you don't need to do that. You can just create a tracking, have a tracking portfolio, that a paper portfolio that just follows those positions. I think what that misses though is that, I mean, unless you're including the price at which you discovered something, that's that's kind of the thing that I find sometimes in, in, you know, in my PA and more discretionary holdings uh, in the past. I don't have any now, but if you, I, I would, you know, you might see that something's gone up or down a lot, and that might be the thing that peaks peaks your interest. Yeah, the other analogy he made was that uh, it's like a library card where you are, you know, you're checking out a little bit of the company, 
uh, not paying much for it, uh, but it it makes you it forces you to read it because you brought the book home. Yeah, I like that. I like that analogy. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Uh, you know, so the guy find me value that commented. Um, I mean, I know him IRL, uh, hmm. and he he's a he's a really impressive dude, right? And like, he is the type of guy that I don't think minds watching 200 companies in an Excel sheet and waiting to take eight bets. Um, but that is aligned with his personality. And I think that what Tom has found and, and what I think you need to really think about when you're, when you're um, trying to adapt somebody else's strategy is like Tom's goal, right, is to make Markel a long-term compounding machine. So whatever drag that Tom gets from like a 5% position from library cards doesn't matter in the real accomplishment of his goal. And if you look at his, his uh, like his actual concentrated holdings, it's, they don't really change that much. So as a Markel shareholder, is it more important that Tom runs like a theoretically sound fund strategy or is it more important that Tom executes what he needs to execute in order to make you wealthy? Um, and I just think that it's a different conversation and you need to play whatever your game is, just like play that game for you. Uh, and I, you know, that I think takes a long time to figure out what your game is. I agree. I think, um, what do you guys think about this as a possible interesting way of approaching it? What if you could kind of gamify it a little bit for yourself where after a certain, let's say a certain number of 10Ks that you read will unlock a percentage that you could bet on it. Or if maybe if you were tracking your time, it could show you that you've, you know, you've spent enough time to be comfortable to unlock a, a, a bigger percentage of equity that you could you could invest into an idea. What do you think about trying to game yourself a little bit? I like that idea. And that's something that we discussed when with, when Bill was trying to work out how much he 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 should buy, I was like, if you there should be like if you find something and you've done a little bit of work, you read that you've read enough of it, you should be able to buy a little bit just to keep on digging into it. Yeah, maybe not a full position until you've completed your entire checklist. But I think that that makes some behavioral sense. Yeah, and I think too. Uh, yeah. Like I think what Bruce Green, well, what he has said in the past is have an index fund or whatever your preferred, like say I want deep value uh, exposure. Okay, fine. There's an ETF that does that. Have something there. Now I've got my exposure and I don't have to have the race to put money out. I mean, I, I think that for me, the hardest thing was now my portfolio is somewhere that I don't need the next idea to enter it. So I don't really have that much of a pressure cooker to find something. So I'm more comfortable with like a watch list. Um, but in the beginning, you know, I mean, when you're, I, I think cash drag is real. I know that it, it's uh, cash doesn't matter until it does, but to get some exposure, uh, I, I think having some, some sort of base strategy and then some tracking stocks is not the end of the world. And I, I just think what Tom does is immaterial relative to the overall accomplishment of his goal. I don't I don't think that, that those tracking stocks create a significant drag. 
somebody else pointed out in the comments that it, however, it, however you're doing it, it's probably fine as long as it works for you. But I think it is helpful to hear how other people do it. And I, that's one thing that I have found personally when I'm, when, you know, I'm a little bit more discretionary is to own a little bit because I don't really pay enough attention to it until I do. And then, you know, if it moves around a little bit, that's, that's kind of my trigger to dig in a little bit more. Yeah, well, and like, I'm sorry, researching, and I know I'm sorry that people have to hear about it again, but researching AB InBev is like so much different than owning a little piece. And once you actually see uh, the financial engineering piece and live through some of the asset sales and like, it's just so different. So, you know, if you need that tracking position to feel that, I think that's important. I agree. I think it's smart, actually. And, they, you know, there's optimal that, you know, maybe you're giving up some tiny little percentage by having those. But if it means that you have a better shot at catching like those one or two that probably can make an entire career, then it becomes completely immaterial. Right. And and your odds are, even if it seems like kind of a local maximum to be efficient, without having any of those frictional points in there, you're probably blind to a bigger maximum by not having it potentially. So I found a great, this is slightly on the same topic, but uh, slightly different thrust. I only discovered this gentleman this morning um, and I'm going to mispronounce his last, his, his last name, Ram Bupatitiraju. Sorry, Ram, if I've mispronounced Sounds it. Sounds right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, only, I only discovered him this morning, but he had this nice thread uh, where he was talking about, uh, he's like, if you like everything about a company, but the only thing stopping you from buying is you think it's overvalued and I'll buy it if it falls X percent, then he says, for God's sake, buy a small amount, one quarter or one third of the overall position size you would have bought at your dream perfect valuation. And he gives the examples of, he found um, Shopify in 2016 at $36.00. V E E V thirty seven dollars P A Y C at forty five dollars. Did all of the initial research, which he says good enough for an individual investor. Uh, didn't buy them because they were too expensive, hoping that he'd get that that pullback. Didn't ever get that pullback. Finally bought them two years later at much higher prices. And so he he's an advocate for. And I I, I late cycle talk. Well, I got two thoughts on that. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out. Well, honestly, I got that's. I'm trying not to... I actually think it's a good idea. I do too. I was just teasing. If I, think, I think if you think that the company is strong enough, then if you think the business is strong enough, then I, like I, I tweeted out, somebody requested that I, I run the numbers on Microsoft's enterprise value price to sales, price to sales, and then somebody else for enterprise value to sales. I don't use those metrics. I just wanted to have a look at it because I, I was asked about them and I, I published it. And that... Microsoft's on like nearly 11 times sales. It's been 36 times sales at the at the very peak 20 years ago in 1999. In between then, it's been cheaper than it is now. Uh, or, or since it listed, it's been cheaper than it is now like 84% of the time. So it's expensive now. And then I saw Hussman tweeted out this morning something else about every decile. He's tracked every decile back 20 or 30 years and he just shows you can see the 99 bubble where the top decile gets very expensive, bottom decile gets cheap. 
Now it looks a little bit similar. It doesn't look like we're all the way through that same cycle where that top decile gets very expensive. It's about 11% cheaper than it was in 2000, but that's kind of immaterial in the, in the grand scheme of that. The bottom decile isn't nearly as cheap, but it's definitely trending in that same direction. You know, it's going down while that top decile is going up, which is why all the value investors, including me, have Pulling been complaining about it for so long. Uh, Jake, well, well, just last Jake at Economics said, "Here's a funny thing: if you'd bought those that most expensive decile in 1999, your return to date, you'd be up about five and a half times, which is about an 8.8 percent CAGR since then. Despite that valuation, because those companies are so strong, and so I just thought about it in relation to Ram's point that if these things are strong enough businesses." then it probably does make sense to have a little bit of a holding in them because it does focus your mind on them. And if, you, if they do at some stage get cheaper, then now you've done the work, you, you know the stock, you buy it really, you buy it. If they keep on going up, then you've already got a little bit of exposure to it. And so, you know, you know it pretty well. Yeah, I think the the third or a quarter is a little bit tough, right? I mean, I, my, I'm trying to be 10% of cost on some of my positions. So to just like sort of throw away a 3% position, that's not so easy. Uh, mm -hmm. so make sure it's, I would say, if you're going to employ this strategy, make sure it's small enough that you can come over the top and like really buy into the valuation that you want. Should that happen? Um, like, you know, I, my buddy and I were talking about this last night, visa, if you're worried about inflation, visa is an inflation hedge. Like there is going to be, if the dollar goes Bitcoin, to bro. nothing, yeah, all that too. So <laughs> I mean, you might get attacked by that, right? But as long as the rails are the way that you pay, where does Visa really lose? And I don't know how much is... I'd rather own that equity than a long bond. I just don't understand the notion of, of buying long bonds here. So, like, does it outperform an equity index? Probably not. Do I sort of view it as better than bonds? Yeah, 100%. That American tower... I mean, all these things that look crazy on the face, if your alternative is some 10, 15, 30-year bond, I'd much rather own those growing businesses and watch them. You know, it's not it's not risk-free, but shit, neither is a bond. Well, wait till Toby explains to you why the U.S. is going NERP on us and uh, you'll <laughs> those long bonds will suddenly make a ton of sense. Well, yeah, I, I, was, I was, you guys know, I was just in, uh, I was in Austin, recording a real vision interview and the guy who was in in front of me was Lacey Hunt. Oh yeah. I love Lacey. So Lacey made his name. He's basically been a, a long bond guy for 30 something years. And, and you're a baller type. You're hanging out with all the cool kids. Lacey and uh, Di DiMartino Booth and, oh, Chris, yeah. and Chris Cole, who's, who's a good friend of mine, but now he's a, now he's a hedge fund now baron as deal. well. Yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a funny um, it's a funny world where you know the long the, 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 those uh, those bond guys have outperformed I think on an absolute basis also on a risk massively on a risk adjusted basis equities you know you've been you would have been better off just being piling into the long bond and not worrying about anything else for the last thirty something years that would have made your life easy and this argument that the long bond is a terrible place to be right now that's been going around for five years and it's still the best place longer. to have been over the last five years. Yeah, longer maybe. Duration is kicked ass. I it's, mean, I don't care what it is. It's it, The longer out, the I, better it's performed. 
I am honestly struggling in this market when I look at, so the Fundsmith, somebody tweeted, I think it was the Fundsmith letter, somebody tweeted out, this is what the average cash yield on this portfolio was. My in. man, science of hitting investing. Did was that. it science? Yeah, it was a great yeah. point. Sorry, I forgot, I, forgot the, I forgot the exact detail of the tweet. I was just reminded of it when, when you were discussing your buddy before, Bill. Um, he said, you know, the yield on that portfolio in 2016, these numbers are wrong, but this is the, the point. He was like, the yield in 2016 was 5%. The yield in 2017 was 4.5%. 2018 was 4%. 2019 was 3.5%. Yeah. This year, it's like 2.8%. So, I, you know, I... I could see myself pulling the trigger on some of these positions at a 5% yield with enough growth, like pretty chunky growth. I can do that. A 2.8%. Uh -oh. Where are you going? <laughs> Welcome to Compound Town, yeah. baby. Yeah. I said at 5%. I could I could do it in 2016. But, so that means there, a lot of the return has come from multiple expansion. This is true. Mm-hmm. And this I think if true. you, that was the point that, I, you know, I thought it was an interesting exercise with Microsoft yesterday that, uh, I, I know that Microsoft has very fat margins. I know the margins are great. The point that I'm making is that it's multiple expansion over an extended period of time in, a, in addition to some compounding. Yeah. Now, look, you own the infrastructure of enterprise software and now the infrastructure of the internet. So it's not like it's a stupid bet on its face. But to your point, the expectations are a lot higher. And the way the expectations treadmill works is you sort of have to run faster to satisfy Wall Street. And if you don't, there's going to be a drawdown, right? I mean, that's just sort of how this game works. Have either uh, of you guys so, looked closely at it? Do you guys have a feel for the valuation of Microsoft? I have not looked closely enough to like have a real informed feel. My gut tells me it's probably pretty fair here. I don't know that you're going to outperform, but like if, I don't know, if you have your kids' capital, and they really have a really long duration. I mean, you got risk. It's not it's not risk free, but um, I I can't argue it's mispriced. It might be gut wrenching, but you know they got a hell of a business. It's just I think it's hard to come up with it. I I can see that all of these businesses are growing really quickly, and they they've still got a good yield, like really great balance sheets. Management's probably smart. All of those things. I think that they're probably going to do okay over the next. You probably. You don't lose money in them over the next 10 or 20 years. I just have trouble pulling the trigger at this kind of level of valuation. I'm just, honestly, I can't, I can't do it at this level. Yeah. Tw 20 years, no. 10, uh, 5, uh. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, and that's, that is sort of the point that I think we've all talked about in the past is like you – you've got to be willing to truly lock up money for that duration and you have to be right for that duration. And that isn't the easiest thing in the world to do when you're staring at a 60% drawdown. And after 10 years of everything going up, everybody thinks they can do it, but mm -hmm. you find out who the pros are from who's just sort of a tourist once the drawdown happens. Two Decembers ago, you found out some of it and a lot of people were freaking out. And that was nothing, really. Yeah. That was a, like an itch. It's 20%, right? Yeah. Please, over three months and a V back. Get out of here if you think that's a drawdown. I don't even know what a drawdown looks like anymore. Apparently that. I mean, aside from the one in my own portfolio. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to slip my topic in here real quick because it's along the conversation. Jake's got to go. Um, but like I, I was reading Capital Account and I did that summary of it. And it's amazing 
how many parallels there were between what they were writing in the late 90s and what I see today. And I'm not here saying, oh, we're ready for a 2000 crash or any of that nonsense. But I am saying that there is a lot of value in going back and reading what people that were smart were saying in the late 90s and thinking about it. Like, you know. What were they it, saying, Bill? Because I, I think that to, for my, my perspective, it's, it's possible that this market is different to the one in the late 90s. The one in the late 90s maybe, and th this is why I'm interested in what you have to say, that it looked to me in the late 90s like there was a lot of really, the dot-coms didn't have much in the way of even revs, certainly not yeah. anything in the way of like profitability. I do think that, you know, I, I do think that there are a lot of very smart guys looking at these compounders and getting them right. And I, that needs to be, I, I respect the fact that they're getting these things right. And I respect the fact they pull the trigger of what looked to me like optically expensive valuations that have then proceeded on to be kind of cheap because they've grown so quickly. So that doesn't indicate to me that there's likely to be this massive drawdown at some stage. But I just, when I look at the, the market looks, you know, like on a Cape basis, as funny as that kind of metric is to everybody listening, that's, that's been proven to be a completely worthless metric, but it still looks expensive to me on that basis. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's true that there are different business models out there. I think what they would say to this comment, um, and one of the, one of their core frameworks is when your valuation exceeds your your replace or your uh, the cost of replicating your business, it incentivizes competition. Right, that is the foundation of capitalism. And unless you can have some sort of lock in, uh, you are unlikely to make economic profits for extended durations when valuations are this high. Conversely. If your valuation is below your replacement costs, there's capital that's fleeing the industry, which is more likely to add uh, a more or which is more likely to result in a more positive outlook going forward at the same time when the outlook is depressed, which creates sort of excess return. What I think that they would probably say, and my skeptics had on the SaaS thing, is if these businesses can grow this quickly, and this gets to some of what Jake has said in the past too. You really need to bet on the lock-in and the duration of the growth. And if a hundred million of sales is uh, showered with a three billion dollar valuation, there is a pretty huge incentive for some sales force to come out and try to steal that relationship from the incumbent. And these SaaS names are sort of proving that the relationship is there to be stolen. So. They, they better be good at defending that relationship too. And it reminds me of what a smart person said, running a business, scaling a business, and running a business at scale are three different skill sets. We know that these guys are good at attacking. Are they good at defense? And I don't know what the answer to that is. Can you say that again? Running a business, scaling, scaling a, business, a business, and running a business that scales are three at different- scale. At, at scale. At scale, I see, sorry. Are three different skill sets. What, what are the, what's the difference? I think that they require different operational capabilities. I, I think that, you know, the ability to, to, so you look at somebody that's running like Big Lots is a retailer that um, has no sales growth, but they are extremely good 
at keeping their operating income exactly where it is, uh, and they're buying in a ton of shares. So on a per share basis, you're getting a fair amount of growth. Um, scaling a business, you know, like that's a completely different skill set. How are you hiring the sales force? How are you managing it? How are you just like not pulling your hair out every day? And then, you know, running a business at scale is something that I, you know, arguably 3G is really good at. Maybe they're not, but I think that's sort of the skill set that you're looking for: optimization and defense. Uh, would be what I would think would be the important things. Um, so anyway, that's I, I think Marathon would say these current valuations are going to incentivize a lot of competition in the future. So how can you be sure that you're defending? This is the thing that you're reading is that that's the update. That's the the second decade because they've written it was what's the the initial that was one the is first. Okay, that's why I shared it because it's like so hard to get. Uh, it's like a five hundred dollar book. It makes no sense. The second one is capital return. So the one that I outlined was 1990 to 2005. And then I, I probably will write uh, like 2005 to 2015 or whatever the second one is. I just, that one's more readily available. So I didn't spend time disseminating it. Well, I like those points. I, I think we've got to move on just for the, just for time. Uh, my, my topic, Capital Spectator has come out with this uh, argument that if you're expecting higher interest rates, there's this 700-year history of uh, interest rates that, that beg to differ. And they've got this chart that shows, and on this chart, you can see things like uh, Simon Van Halen lending to Edward III in, it looks to me like maybe 1335, something like that. He was getting 35% interest rates. Amadi Rommel loan to King Sigismund, eighteen percent in about uh, like thirteen eighty, I would estimate. And so they've got, these, time. they've got all these dots on this uh, on this chart, and then and they've, that, they've drawn is this triple B or what's the? <laughs> There's a Buffett terms right there. Lacey Hunt would have been all over this trade seven hundred mm -hmm. years ago. So basically, the the thing has. Over time, they've got this thing that they've got this chart that purports to show that they've fitted a line to it, and it points to basically zero interest rates in 2018. I got a couple of problems with this. One, um, I don't think we really have enough data 700 years ago, 500 years ago, 200 years ago to draw any really strong conclusions about where the market was back then. I think uh, maybe capital was a little bit harder to come by, and uh, we didn't have quite the same but maybe that's the argument maybe that's the argument that they're making that uh, it should be closer to zero but within sort of living memory not my own but other people's we had we had zero interest rates in 1937 and in the 86 we had like 16 percent interest rates we had stagflation in the 70s with very high interest rates and now through the intervention of central banks, we've gone back to like virtually 0% interest rates. I don't see that that's directionally down. I think that that's the bottom of a cycle. And we're, I, I don't necessarily know that we go back to higher interest rates to the other side, but I think that what that shows is that it cycles rather than it's directionally down. Anyway, I, clearly I've got nothing, no idea what I'm talking about because we're at zero and the, the arrow points down to zero. So I'll... Uh... Just for fun, I'll take the other side of the, the argument. And I was thinking about this, that 
One of the biggest things that is a, a marker of how successful an economy will be is the level of trust between all of the participants. And I think you could make the pretty strong argument that we have probably more trust than they did 500 years ago. Um, I think uh, if you look at like they've looked at uh, like different hunter gatherers societies and and measured their level of trust and like it correlates really well with productivity and it's just, like even just trading all those kinds of things require a higher level of trust. I think we've also seen a a centralization of power on a lot of different fronts that we might be peak centralization right now. And that doesn't mean necessarily that it's like something that can keep go, going on because I think uh, eventually that sort of thing fragments and we get more decentralization again. But one of the things I think would correlate with the centralization would be higher trust rates. Therefore, it doesn't surprise me that maybe lower lower interest rates are part of that. Yeah, I like that. I like that argument. I can also see looking at that chart, data is better now than it was and this may be just reinforcing your point, but data is so much better now than it was. And I think that it's, we all sort of know, we've got a rough idea where the market is. Like you, you know what the market is for different credits. You can work mm -hmm. out what sort of credit somebody is. So maybe we are just getting better at lending to them. But I think that absent that central banks pinning interest rates negative or zero, I don't think that they come down to negative or zero. I just, I just don't see why you would lend to someone without getting some return on your lending. Well, fundamentally, you're getting paid for risk, right? I mean, that that is what an interest rate is. So you're you're giving out money today to get money tomorrow. It's just very hard for me to think that in a world where the central bank has turned rates negative, that isn't incenting behavior that is more risk-seeking and therefore compressing spreads. I just... It's just very, very hard for me to believe that when you have all of Europe seeking for yield, uh, that that doesn't have some impact on the overall rate market. And I, I don't know how to quantify it. I don't know how to put it into numbers. It's just sort of like a common sense thing to me that may not be common, right? I mean, I might be wrong, but my brain says if this many people are looking for some yield, it's bound to compress yields. Bye, bye, bye. Um, yeah, I uh, <laughs> there. I've only heard one argument for negative interest rates that makes any sense to me, and it's if you think about a bond as more of like a piece of art, because there's there's no yield to a piece of art. However, you will you can speculate that someone will pay you more for it later, uh, and maybe there's even storage costs of a piece of art. Uh, a bond that is being speculated on could also be bought at a negative interest rate if you believe someone is going to come and pay you more for it. So it's it's a giant greater fool theory. There's only speculation is the only reason you'd ever take a negative interest rate on a bond. Or if you think the world's going to shit and you want some guaranteed return and you think it'll be less bad what? than you're guaranteeing your loss. Yeah, yeah, you are. But if your if your bet is that others will lose more, you could you could lose a little on paper but gain wealth. But then right? why as, would you as, why wouldn't you direct it to another asset? Like if 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 it's I a if it's a negative interest rate for a bond, <laughs> the world's insane. What do you want? Why don't you then go and buy some? Like, doesn't that make you want to buy gold? No, it makes me want to buy Visa. 
Well, that's fair. But this... because I because I think the way you get out of this problem is destroying the value of currency. I think gold bugs are probably right on that. And if that's the case, more more currency flows through Visa's pipes, and they can buy in shares, and they can grow. And so is Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin benefits in that world. Yeah, that's why I just don't understand why people are buying bonds right now. Like, I, I get it if you have some mandate, fine, that's your job. But if you are actually trying to like build wealth, it's just very, very hard for me to understand. Not financial advice. The argument but... for gold is that there's no counterparty risk, right? If you hold the actual yes. physical, you don't have to worry about, you know, Visa still, it's very good credit, but if there's still counterparty risk there. Not really. I mean, they're just skimming. I mean, it's, it's so no risk. It's not no risk, but you the world that Visa does get, risk, but that's kind of that's right. probably about it. In, in the yeah. sense that they could just go and print a whole lot of gold. Somebody can figure that out at some stage. Well, but in a, in a world where Visa's counterparty risk is a problem, like I don't think we're discussing Visa's counterparty risk. I think we're trying to figure out how to eat. Uh, <laughs> so, so like the the thing about gold is you've got a thousand years of history, and I guess in theory, like Bitcoin can't come destabilize the network. But Bill Burr's me, got a great joke where he says, uh, "If you're if you're just holding gold, looking for the end of the the world, you just." Basically, he's like the biggest guy on the block is just going to come and turn you upside down and hit you until your gold coins fall out on the ground. That's 100% what I said to my buddy who's a huge gold bug. I'm like, Paul, you want you want all this gold? Somebody's going to come kick your ass. Like, you better invest in bullets too. Yeah, it might be it might be a prison economy. It might be cigarettes that are the that are currency in the next in the next go round. That's right. But you know, in that runs world, in that world, you're not a. The, the bet on Visa is not your biggest problem. Like you got much bigger issues. So Visa's your Noah's Ark bet then, huh? You wanna if it rains for forty years, you want you wanna own Visa. And I don't own it. Uh so it's hard <laughs> to say, you know, but yeah, other than that, great advice. I have I have no skin in that game. What's your well, free cash flow of, yield on Visa at the moment? It's not high. I mean that's the issue. It's probably two and a half. I mean, I don't know, maybe two. Might be under it might be under two. I mean, that's the issue. That's but at the rate that it's things. growing, if you buy it now, it'll be at like 2.8% in like five years' time. So that's great. <laughs> well, and you're going to be able to see it. The, nice. the terminal value is not going to zero on that uh, in, in all probability. So I, I don't know. That's one of those that I would understand buying despite valuation and just saying like, I think it's probably okay over the long term. The terminal value of everything is zero over a long enough time frame. It might be. I mean, famous last words. I'm trying to find our mailbag questions for the week. I'll tell you what it doesn't satisfy. The precondition of low expectations. That is not peak pessimism that you're buying into right now. No. So they, they've got to deliver on some pretty high expectations. Yeah. They probably will, though. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's a hell of a business. And it's like a tax on global payments that's i mean if you're gonna make a bet i'd rather bet on that than a freaking bond did you ever read uh d hawk who was the founder of visa his his autobiography he talks about founding visa i did not uh, it's quite good he talks about this uh he calls it a chaotic organization so it's like chaos and order mixed huh. together uh and basically he like sets up the rules so that's the order part and then allows it to emerge, and that's the chaos part. And uh, he calls sounds it sounds like Mark Leonard. Chaotic. Yeah, a lot actually sounds like a lot of smart people that we 
we look up to. That's my yeah. bat signal, Mark Leonard. <laughs> Wait, I have to look up from the phone. Here's one thing I've been thinking about in relation to uh, Constellation and, and, and those uh, the high performance compounders. In the you know there was a there's been a previous uh, there was a previous mania for conglomerates in the 60s that then turned into a uh, mania for buyouts in the 80s where they were they were pulling apart these these things and I just thought really the trick that Constellation does is that they buy a solid business that's not a great business like organic growth out of their acquisitions is like four percent a year which is basically inflation so they buy them at four or five times enterprise multiples and then they are valued on a 30 to 50 times enterprise multiple so how really impressive is that trick Ooh, boy, you're going to get people mad at you. Yeah, <laughs> calling down the thunder. Yeah, why don't you go do it, man? <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's that's exactly the point there, right? Like, That if, is a good point. Why, why not then just go and do that? They got a process. Tyler Hassan had a good thread on why Constellation has an acquisition, uh, I guess, advantage over other people. What is it? So. I, speed of execution, consistency of underwriting, guarantee of deal done. Uh, it, his, he had a friend that tried to sell something, and it was really, really hard for them to do it. And Constellation closed pretty quick, uh, or at least I'm pretty sure they did. But read his thread. Yeah, I could get, but that's, that, I, I can see that, and I do believe that there is some of that, and that is real. But if I get some guys who roll out, if I get some young guys who roll out of Blackstone, and I can get enough. If I can get $100 million in cash behind me, do you think that I can go and pull off some deals really quickly? I'll bet you that I can. I think that a lot of people attribute a moat to execution, and a lot of people underestimate how hard good execution is to execute or something like that. Yeah, (laughs) one too many executes in that. Deals Deals are really tough. Deals are messy as hell. They're really, really tiring and tedious. I did it for a decade. 100 hour weeks it's, it's brutal doing those sort of things and they, they deals try to die all the time too there's lots of you go through the other side's documents there's all of these hand grenades and trip wires and things that you find in it it's a game of imperfect information you're just trying to get to the point where you kind of know where all of the potholes are to do the deal even still there's a lot of guys out there who do it you can still get it done roper does it uh, I mean, it's different, but Roper's got a similar thing. So, yeah, I don't think I don't think acquisitions as a strategy is inherently replicable. But they've got some secret sauce there. I mean, you got to at least look at the history and say these guys have done it long enough to bet on it a little bit. But there's going to be competition, right? Because it's not it's not impossible to imagine competition to something like that. And it has to be an arbitrary. If there's a big arb between a private market value and a public market value, and in this case we're talking, you can buy them at four to five times and get a thirty time multiple in the market. That's six x. Do you think I can pay ten times and get a twenty times multiple? That's still a really good return. I'm still doubling my money in the market. Yeah, I what say is, this I mean, is someone who loves the strategy. On your what is the thirty x on your equity though? really matter in the deal structure we well, can They're pay not, in equity they aren't they don't really do that though right i thought they mostly pay cash you, you could you could though it gives you the option and it, it's just i mean if they were valued at the multiples that they were paying i guess we're still talking about free cash flow generation yeah unless you're using it as a currency it's not really 
that big of an advantage to have a big multiple. It's better that, that they're vacuuming up four and five times earnings and then being smart enough not to do it capital. Whoops, you just went into the matrix. Uh, matrix uh, again. Man, that was a really good one too. Shit. All right, just well, say it you... and I'll, I'll edit yeah. it or not because it's funny. <laughs> uh, I said the isn't the magic that they're paying four or five times earnings and then smart enough not to redeploy capital into those verticals that then crush the returns on capital. But you, you know that trick now. So do I. We can go and do that. <laughs> I'm game. We're, what's our first deal? I don't think that... I don't think that... Fill um, you in? The, the, the multiple's not the... The if multiple that they, they earn in the market is not the issue. The, the, multi, the multiple that are given in the market is not the issue. All I'm saying is that you're buying them right now at a 30 times multiple. And what you're getting for that is them buying stuff at four to five times multiples. And I'm saying, can I access that four to five times market multiple without going through them. So maybe I can't get it at four to five times. Maybe I've got to pay six times. Well, that's still 20% of what I'm paying if I buy them. A lot of people don't want to go out and do it themselves. Mm, yeah, well, that's fair. It is a pretty good premium, though, to, to hire that service, right? Because really, the Constellation's customer is small software companies that they're buying, right? <laughs> Right. Liberty, hit us up. Give us some thoughts on the Twitter machine about this because okay. he, he's thought about it a lot, I'm sure. Uh, McKinsey has some thoughts. I was just reading them on multiple arbitrage. I can't, I can't put anything articulate out right now. I know that they don't like it. Out of all of the strategies, that's the least one. I think they like it the least. Um, maybe I'm confusing them with a marathon. But anyway, I don't disagree with you. Uh, you're paying that kind of multiple you sort of want some organic uh growth improvement use. maybe yeah as well but but then it seems to me that the, the the trick the thing that all of these guys have done really well is that they don't then go in i mean buffett doesn't go in and tell them how to run their business barry yeah. Diller doesn't go in and tell them how to run their business not so sure about heiko maybe they have figured out how to run those businesses a little bit better but constellation certainly does not that's their whole point and mark leonard says we don't interfere with their culture some of those cultures are going to be good and they're going to go really well some are going to be bad and they're going to die out but i can't tell the difference and so i'm happy to let them figure it out for themselves yeah well i think they just help with the capital allocation in a lot of instances right where they just say uh if you're gonna spend over this then i gotta approve it and other than that go at it so you now guys you, know are, you guys are in t in los angeles where i am we're all i oh know you're not quite in los angeles yet Jake, you got the you got the same old background, but we're all in Los we're all going to be in Los Angeles for the Daily Journal. So what's happening? Well, we've got a couple hours of Munger time, and that's something not to be missed. I think it's going to be live streamed, if I remember right. Um, but yeah, I mean, even two hours worth of Munger is at ninety six years old is is worth the trip down for me. Yeah, and I, I would say you know a lot of. A lot of the great relationships that I have made have come out of these circles of people. So uh, I just try to put myself in more more circles circles like it. And you know, if you're interested in this stuff, uh, the Berkshire event is kind of a circus, but it's a hell of a networking opportunity, and it's a great time to get together with friends. I think Daily Journal is somewhat similar. It's getting a little big for my taste, though. Um, mm. Last year, I sort of was like, eh. 
So I don't know. But how many times do you get to see Charlie? We're going to have to get, you'll get your takes on it next week. Sounds good. I would say that if, uh, if Berkshire is oil, then Daily Journal is more jet fuel. I'll tell you what, though. I wish people would stop asking him how to live a fulfilling life. Like, ask him stuff that's, I mean, I'm sure he's fulfilled, but come on, folks. Same yeah, with Buffett. Like, minutia on Wells Fargo instead. Is that or what ask him strategy questions or something like that. Like, these guys aren't freaking life gurus. Don't come to them for that. Go to Tony Robbins. Jeez. <laughs> anyway. I don't know, man. I'm fading that take. I think the, the things that Buffett and Munger teach you are the money part is nice but there's a lot more in outside of that that i've that i've gotten out of it just be right. ju- just before we go this week i just I, on my as i was traveling around this last week um i read the uh intelligent fanatics books by uh ian castle and sean eddings and i gotta say i found it really inspirational i i read i only read the one on jack henry for for our talk last week and i so i've spent the last time actually reading through the stories in there i've got to say the thing that stands out there are these i do think that there are these universal life not not, maybe not life lessons but universal lessons for running businesses and i think you know maybe it just comes down to something as simple as treating other human beings like human beings that's Mm. as radical as that sounds (laughs) reciprocity is uh is is pretty well baked into human psychology and even Newton's third law is a form of reciprocity, right? And an action has an equal and opposite reaction. I think, I think it, that's fair. I also think it's something that you can apply on Twitter. I see these guys on Twitter all the time who are very smart, but they're complete assholes. And I don't follow them because I don't follow assholes on Twitter. And I just think if you're, if you have to tell everybody how smart you are and how dumb they are all the time, and that's your thing, then you're missing like a lot of the experience on Twitter, which is not just to show everybody how smart you are, but also to, you know, build friendships and learn something a little bit deeper. So um, I, I get a little bit tired of these guys taking shots at everybody all the time. I don't care how smart you are. Everybody everybody in this room is smart. Yeah, Welcome so, to Toby's TED Talk. So, <laughs> Thank yeah, you for so coming no, to my TED Talk. I, I think where I will fade myself on the Buffett and Munger thing is I do think you're right, Jake. As they've gotten older, I think they have preached more balance. I will say that if you are trying to be them, though, they didn't get – to where they are by being balanced that you you can't like they got to where they are by neglecting their family and now they regret a lot of the neglect that they gave and they're saying maybe this isn't worth it right so that is something to listen to and internalize but you can't in my opinion have both uh and as far as twitter goes i could not agree more i mean i approach it from like a collaborative uh mindset and the people that i met are incredible um, but yeah, like some of these guys that just have something to prove, like, fine, go prove it to somebody else. I think that's all we got time for this week, gents. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Move with the Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13. Sing one, two, three, four. Cause, cause, cause.